Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Elna Baker. What fetish am I? And she said, you're the virgin. And I was like, what? She said, oh, we have been looking for a virgin in New York for years. That and more. But before that, musical ridiculousness. Take it from this redhead queer. You don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream. So use stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use stamps.com. Why don't you use stamps.com? Right. Now get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> Plus $110 bonus off for the digital scale. And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. And just one more little ditty here about Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform where sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website? Squarespace.com Squarespace.com And you can drag and drop your images to upload. With Squarespace.com, your site will look great on any device. Building state-of-the-art web pages and blogs has never been easier. So try Squarespace.com. 
lungs. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code RISK to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is pastor t.l barrett and the youth for christ choir this is the first risk episode of 2016 we're back back in the saddle i'm working on a video called how to pitch stories for risk we're gonna have that up soon I am determined to make 2016 the best year of risk ever. And partly the way that we do that is to have you, the fans, pitching us your stories or encouraging people you know to pitch us stories. Remember, we're always looking for stories of people from all walks of life. People who have been homeless, people who have experienced prejudice, people of color, people who belong to religious or cultural minorities, war veterans, people who have experienced dramatic outdoor adventures or dealt with serious crimes, people who have had horrific or euphoric experiences with drugs, stories about death or mental illness or spiritual breakthroughs. The list just goes on and on, and we need you pitching those stories to pitches at risk-show.com and there's more information on the submissions page at our site now today's episode is a very special one this is live from salt lake city we had an extraordinary show great people great crowd such a special show that we thought we'd run more or less the entire thing for you uninterrupted now, this is one of those venues that's, you know, also a bar and there's a lot of serving of drinks going on, all that kind of. So you'll hear the whole uh, carnival <laughs> that was that room that evening. Also, at one point in the show, I shared another one of my uh, porn magazine stories that was published in the 90s that has recently surfaced on the Internet. So be warned that that's snuck in there somewhere. We're going to start with an extraordinary young lady who has made the news and has done some pretty damn heroic stuff. If you want to look for her on the internet, she's on Twitter at Kate underscore Kelly underscore ESQ because she's a lawyer. This is Kate Kelly with a story we call The Outcast.
When I was baptized Mormon, I was eight years old, and I had to be dunked three times. Uh, the first time I went down and the jumpsuit that I was wearing popped up. So my dad pulled me out of the water and then I had to go back down again. Second time, same thing happened. Jumpsuit popped up, had to go down a third time into the water, got pulled out and you have to be fully submerged. So this time he dunked me all the way down and pulled me all the way back up. And my mom kind of gave him a look of relief, like, okay, fine, like, I came out of the water and I was pure and clean and my dad went off to the right to the men's restroom and I went off to the left and I got out of the water and I was soaking wet in this really baggy men's adult-sized jumpsuit. Earlier that day I had told my parents that I refused to be baptized because I had seen other little girls in their baptism dresses and they were pretty and frilly and white and when I got there, we didn't have a dress, and they pulled out of the closet the uniform that people use when they don't plan ahead, I guess. And it was a man's size jumpsuit, and I was an eight-year-old girl, so I had to roll up the sleeves all the way up until they were really baggy so they would fit my little girl arms, and I had to roll up the legs, and so I was sitting there in this almost like Christmas story jumpsuit, white thing, polyester, zip up the front, and I was very unsatisfied with this particular look. So I told my parents, I'm not getting baptized. I ran outside and I was crying and I'm like, I'm not gonna do it. My whole family is sitting there. And I didn't know it at the time, but I think um, something that I felt was, why is the one size fits all only for men? And, you know, I went through my Mormon upbringing. I was very earnest and sincere, and I loved Mormonism, and I went to girls camp. And girls camp, if you haven't been or don't know, is basically like Jesus Camp, that movie for indoctrinating Christians, but it's for Mormon girls. <laughs> and there are a lot of friendship bracelets involved. I don't know why that's the part of it, but it is. And then there's also boys, boys go to Boy Scout camp. But Boy Scout camp is like high adventure, hiking, rafting, all these things. And like we're like making crafts and crying in the woods, basically. <laughs> that, that's what girls camp is. And, but I remember being at girls camp and sitting around a campfire you know, just crying and everyone talking about how the church is true. And Mormons actually believe that only Mormons go to heaven and that Mormonism is the one true church and we have the monopoly on all truth. And so there's something as a child, knowing that you have access to the, the truth and that you're a part of a special club that gets to go to super special heaven and that only your family will be there and other people that are around you might not be able to get to heaven. And so, you know, I went through high school and, and uh, thinking that I was very special. And I grew up in Oregon, so I was one of the only Mormon kids in my school. And, but I was friends with all kinds of people. And one of my friends, um, he, his name was Tom, and he got busted for drinking on campus. He was always smoking. He had a bunch of minors in possession. We were a very odd couple uh, at the time. And for my 17th birthday, he gave me three things. Uh, the first thing that he gave me uh, was a copy of Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. <clears throat> the second thing that he gave me was a book called Brigham Young's 27th Wife. And <laughs> it was an expose about polygamy that one of the wives that got away wrote. And the third thing that he gave me was a copy of Orgasmo, which... <laughs> I'm, keep in mind, I'm this very sincere, like, very earnest, like, girls camp going Mormon girl. 
And so I get a VHS tape of Orgasmo, uh, which is a movie about a Mormon missionary made by um, the makers of South Park about a Mormon missionary who turns to the porn industry. Um, And the way that I responded to this gift that Tom gave me was I gave him a copy of the Book of Mormon (laughs) with his name engraved on it (laughs) in gold writing. And I told him, read this book and pray to know if it is true. I think, again, there's just something so nice about having a single answer to every question. And the answer to every question is, read the Book of Mormon and pray to know that it is true. So I went to Brigham Young, the Lord's University, uh, and I ended up going on a mission. And the earnestness and commitment of going on a mission is perfectly captured in the Book of Mormon musical. I'm like, that shit is not satire. That is exactly how it is. Um, And, you know, I had a chance to do so many things and minister to so many people that I never would have encountered. I met a woman who was so obese and suffered from extreme bulimia and lost 100 pounds, but nobody noticed and she was suicidal because no one noticed. And I got to go in as a 21-year-old girl and sit by her side and hold her hand and tell her that it was going to be okay if she read the Book of Mormon. Um, I also um, met an undocumented couple. They lived in a one bedroom that was about the size of a prison cell. The woman was only allowed to leave her employer's home 12 hours a week. They were so poor that I remember sitting on the bed next to the husband, and he was wearing a kitten sweater because they just it was cold and they needed clothes to wear. And so I sat by them, and I loved them, and I told them to read the Book of Mormon. Uh, I also met a woman, her name was Maria, she was my same age, she was a truth seeker. I taught her about the Book of Mormon and she decided to get baptized that same day. Maria actually ended up serving a mission herself and is still Mormon. I'm friends with her on Facebook. Uh, (laughs) Oh, how things have changed. And so, you know, Maria, I taught her, I led her to the waters of baptism, but when it got to performing the ordinance, I was not allowed to perform the ordinance, even though I loved her so much. And so I had to hold her hand up to the font, and she got into the waters of baptism, but an elder missionary that she didn't know was the one that baptized her, and that hurt. And that was the beginning of me thinking about the ways in which men and women are treated differently in the church. And it began to hurt more than it had hurt before. And I came home from my mission, and I had had all these experiences. I had met all these wonderful people. I was able to speak Spanish, and so I talked to people I had never talked to before, and I decided to be a human rights lawyer because the universality of love and of human rights I wanted to apply to my secular life as well. And so I began to do all these cases in different parts of the world, And I met a woman named Jenny from Zimbabwe. She started a group called Women of Zimbabwe Arise. And they would routinely protest and be beaten and tortured and jailed for really basic things like speaking up for water rights or education. And Jenny said to me one time that it was so empowering just to be able to stand up and speak for yourself. And the people that arrested her were just police in her community. So she would see this guy who would hit her with a baton on her back the next day when she's going to the store in her same town. 
And I was really struck by the sincerity and by the intimacy of that struggle. And I thought, I'm doing all this work all around the world, but I go to church every Sunday and I don't speak up for myself and I don't speak up for my sister and I don't speak up for my niece and I don't speak up for my mom. And I participate in an institution where I am fundamentally discriminated against. Even though I'm a lawyer, even though I'm smart, even though I'm capable, I allow that to happen passively. And so I decided to start a group. I decided to speak up. And most secular people at this point would say, well, why don't you just leave? <laughs> but I'm a person that doesn't leave. I'm a person who stays. I'm a person that commits. And also, I loved Mormonism. I didn't want to leave it. I wanted it to change. I wanted it to be a place where people like me could live, could, could occupy a space and feel comfortable. And so that's why I started a group called Ordained Women um, to advocate for women uh, gender justice in the church and what we did was unprecedented. We did direct actions to demonstrate with our bodies that we wanted full inclusion into the church. So we, the first thing that we did was we tried to attend an all-male priesthood meeting in Salt Lake City. And we gathered several hundred women in downtown Salt Lake City in a park and we walked up to the tabernacle in a line, and I was at the front of the line, because for some reason I had started this movement, and I was feeling so afraid and shaking, because as a Mormon woman, you're taught that confrontation is wrong, that you're always to give deference to men, and that you're supposed to sacrifice for the greater good. And I was walking up to the tabernacle, and I remember there was a woman named Julia standing behind me, and she touched my back, and she said, we're behind you, we're behind you, keep walking, don't turn around, don't turn around it's okay keep walking and so I did um, and we walked up to the door and we asked to be let in and it was the first time when I felt a physical sensation of the exclusion that I felt by being left out because of my gender and we were turned away and because of founding ordained women I was excommunicated for apostasy I was charged and convicted by three men that I knew. One of them was my bishop, who the week before had brought me strawberries to my house and told me to have a good time in Africa. And we were friends. And they tried me in absentia. I wasn't there. I submitted a written defense. And they informed me of my excommunication via email. So I got the email, and as I was scrolling down, scrolling down, scrolling down, I got to the part where it said that I was to be excommunicated. That meant that my baptism that I had had when I was eight years old was canceled. That meant that my marriage was void. That meant that I would never be with my family in heaven. And that's a big thing for Mormons. And so... I collapsed in a pile on the floor and I was simultaneously so heartbroken and also so angry. And the reason that I was angry is that I didn't want them to have that power over me. I wanted to be like Jenny of Woza. I wanted to just move forward and be so strong and powerful, but I felt so trapped and I felt so alone and I felt so angry. I loved the community, but I hated the institution that was so violent and that treated me and other women like this. And so... It was in the media a lot, and a lot of people wanted to do interviews with me, but I told the women that I was with, I just need one day, I just need one day to myself where I can grieve. And I went home, and Mormons wear uh, special underwear. <laughs> Uh, they're called garments, and they go under your clothes, they go down to your knees, and they cover your shoulders, and they go, and no one's supposed to see them. And they're a commitment, a sign of your commitment to God. And that night I went home, and I put all my garments in a black trash bag. 
and my husband said, burn them. <laughs> and I put them under my bed because I wanted to save them in case I was successful in my appeal. I was going to appeal my conviction to the highest level, and I thought even to that day, I thought maybe they'll do the right thing. Maybe they'll realize it's wrong to exclude women. Maybe they'll realize how sincere I am. And so the next day, I wore this exact dress that I'm wearing now, a 1950s housewife dress, um, conservative in every way, but if you'll notice, does not have sleeves. And I did that for two reasons. One was I wanted to say fuck you to the patriarchy. (laughs) Nothing says that like a little bit of shoulder. And I also wanted to catch Mormons in their pathological judginess. I wanted to see what they would respond to. And sure enough, the next day online, basically the internet imploded. And they weren't talking about the violence of the situation. And they weren't talking about how women were fundamentally excluded from all decision-making levels in the church. And it wasn't fair. What they were fucking talking about was buy sleeveless dress. (laughs) Um... And I, it, I felt so satisfied because I, I knew that um, that said more about them than it said about me. Um, and so I think when I talk about the story of my excommunication, people anticipate a lot of bitterness. But really, it's so intertwined. It's so twisted together. It's love. It's hate. It's complicated. It's nuanced. It's all of these things combined together. It's righteous anger. It's admiration. And it's basically like a big fucking mixed bag of emotions that can't be separated. And I have to take these two things that I love and that I hate, the pain and the joy, the sincerity and just the absolute vulnerability and sorrow that I felt, and I have to hold them together in my hands, and I have to present that, and I have to feel that, and I have to hold that. And it's very, very difficult. But I think in the end, Mormonism gave me the best gift that they can give me, and it was not very many people get one moment in their life when they get to choose an ideal and they have to sacrifice everything for that ideal and Mormonism gave me that it was like when I was stepping up to the tabernacle I stepped over a divide and when I was excommunicated I had to step forward and say I'm going to be committed to this no matter what and I felt the same now and the same then that day as I did on the day that I got baptized I was excited I loved the things about Mormonism but I also wanted to run out of the building screaming that it's not fair, it's not fair. Awesome, that was awesome. Although I was a little taken aback by the sleevelessness. Um, uh, All right, I'd like to bring our next storyteller up to the stage. He has told at the B before here in town. He's also in an improv troupe called the Sock Puppets uh, that perform in Harriman. Please welcome to the side. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. When he said it, all I heard was harem? I had to ask. Um, okay, uh, let me bring up to the stage Blake Hoops. When I was a teenager, I lived a double life. On the outside, I was funny and outgoing and intelligent. 
And I was a devout member of the LDS church, and I lived my life in a very stereotypically Mormon way. I attended church every Sunday. I was called to be president of the priesthood quorum for the young men. I was enrolled in seminary, and I never missed a class if I could avoid it. I had a good group of Mormon friends and a beautiful girlfriend whose friends were jealous of our relationship because I was respectful and I never pressured her into uh, to be immodest with me. <laughs> and that leads to the other side of my life. Inside, I was surrounded by a dark fog of depression because I was attracted to guys. The only way I knew how to give an outlet to that was consuming as much internet porn as I could get my hands on. <laughs> my mom checked the uh, internet history and she got on the phone to her sister immediately, Robin, Blake's been looking at porn online. <laughs> well, he's a teenage boy, Lisa. <laughs> That's pretty normal. But some, some of it was with men. Well, he might have just been curious. Was it just one or two sites? Almost all of it was with men. <laughs> Lisa, your son's gay. <laughs> so I got home from school that afternoon, and she said, Blake, I need to talk with you in the bedroom. And I was following her, and my brain was just going crazy. What have I done? What could I be getting in trouble for? This is serious. And she sat me down, and she said, you know, everything that you look at on the Internet is recorded on the computer, and I can see, and I, I know about the pornography. And I noticed that some of it included men were... Were you just curious? Time stopped. My brain was just frozen, and I didn't know how to react. The silence stretched out for what felt like eternity. I just stumbled. Uh, yeah, I, I just... I, I must have just come across it by accident. I, I was just curious. I, it was really weird, though, and I didn't like it. And, oh, oh, good. Well, you know that makes your Heavenly Father really sad. And... I'm going to have to talk with your dad and, and we're going to cancel the internet because I don't want that temptation in my house anymore. And I've made an appointment for you to speak with the bishop because you need to repent for this. So I started meeting with the bishop regularly and the depression started getting worse and I had cut on myself before that, but it became a nightly ritual. It's weird for me to think back to that time in my life because I don't even really understand cutting, but at the time it was the only way I could release that emotional pain, I had it just trapped inside of me and I didn't know how to let it out. And I would just feel the blade pressing into my skin and watch the blood start to fill and think to myself, how deep can I go and how much will this let out? And it was the only way that I knew how to be in control of anything. And eventually the cutting wasn't enough and it led to a failed suicide attempt and my, I started meeting weekly with LDS Family Services in Salt Lake City. It was quite a drive, seven round, hours round trip from my hometown in Wyoming to come and meet with a therapist. And it was soon evident to everyone that that wasn't enough and I needed something more. So my parents always towed the line of poverty and couldn't afford the treatment that was being recommended. So the therapist and my bishop contacted the LDS church and told them that if they wouldn't help pay for this treatment, they were gonna help pay for a funeral. So in July of 2002, I entered a treatment center for troubled youth in North Salt Lake City. It was intensive outpatient, so we spent all day in group therapy, and at night we would go home with 
uh, teenagers who had been in the program long enough to progress to the old comer phase. The majority of the kids in there were addicted to drugs and alcohol, so we all lovingly referred to it as rehab. And that's really what it was. We all had emotional issues, and we turned to various outlets for that pain. After a while of being in rehab, I started going to a doctor's office to undergo the preliminary testing for aversion therapy to rid me of my same-sex attractions. And what that involved was they hooked me up to a breathing monitor and a heart rate monitor and a penile plethysmograph, which is a copper coil placed around the base of my penis, and it would determine what made me aroused. And they showed me images and played erotic audio, and in the end, they determined that I had a deviant attraction to males my age. (laughs) And the course of treatment for this, this shame was to, I I had to write down a story of myself engaged in a sexual activity with a male, and then a different story of a future activity with my wife, my future wife. And I would read these stories, and if the machines determined that I was aroused by the male story, a lab tech would come in with a Tupperware and open it up under my nose, and it had a rotting moose liver inside. (laughs) Rotten meat is enough to make anyone wretch, but there's something about it being right in front of you and not being able to remove yourself from that moment. The the odor was, was thick, and you could cut through it. At the end of reading the story of the future wife, I would be rewarded with candy, and the idea was that my brain would negatively associate sex with guys with rotting moose liver, and I could eventually lead a healthy heterosexual lifestyle. <laughs> so I, I have to be honest, I desperately wanted the aversion therapy to work. I, was not, I didn't feel duped into it, but that being said, I was a naive 17-year-old with the life experience of Mormonism from Wyoming. <laughs> the treatment center was really intense. All-day group therapy, it was emotionally raw and distressing. And the, the man who ran the clinic had called me out in group a few times asking me if I had ever touched the children in my mom's daycare. Uh, apparently, in 2002, it was still acceptable for a clinician to be under the persuasion that all gay people are pedophiles. And there was nothing I could do to convince him that I was not a child molester. And eventually I I reached the decision that I I had to bust out of rehab. I couldn't stay there any longer. So one day I was helping out after lunch, and when nobody else was looking, I pocketed a paring knife. And that night I had hosted out with with an old comer. Normally it was more than one person, but that night it was just me and him. And after dinner, we went to get my things for a shower, and uh, his parents were going about their day. And he, when I grabbed my pillowcase and it had just my socks and a change of underwear for the shower and it also had that knife in it, and I turned towards the front door and he looked at me and he's like, what are you, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm leaving. And he laughed and he, that's a half-assed attempt at a runaway. Come on, let's go. And I just kept walking for the door and, and I could see in his eyes that when I didn't go with him, he believed me. And he chased me towards the door, and he held it closed, and he called for his parents. And they came in, and they called the staff at the center, and then they told them that if I wasn't cooperating, to call the police. I knew I had to get out of there, and I was racking my brain for how I could get them out of my way. 
And I know that Mormon people are, are, they hate curse words. So I just said, get the fuck out of my way. I need to get the fuck out of here. And it, it wasn't the kryptonite I wanted it to be. <laughs> they were shocked, yes, but they stood firm. And that's when I realized that I had a knife. And I never had intention of using it on anyone but myself, but I knew the power it wielded in revealing that in that moment. And I was right. I pulled it out, and his parents pulled him back and got the fuck out of my way. And I, I broke for the door, and he reached out and grabbed a hold of my sleeve of my hoodie, and I ripped my arm around, and he let go, and I ran. And I found out later that he only let go because the knife had cut him. It was a minor cut, but I feel guilty about it still to this day. And as soon as I was out of the house, I ran up the street around the corner, and then I could hear the police cars approaching. So I jumped over a fence and then jumped over a taller fence into a different person's yard, and I crawled underneath their back deck. And I just lay there cold and shivering. It was, it was actually uh, 13 years ago tonight, so you know how, how the temperatures are out there. And... After a while, I could hear people calling my name, and I realized that they, it wouldn't be too long before they searched and found me where I was hiding. So I crept to the gate, and I looked through a hole in the fence, and I saw a man with a flashlight come out from behind the house across the street and go into the next yard. And so I opened the gate really quietly and ran as quickly and quietly as I could across the street. And as soon as I was in that person's yard, I knew I was safe, and it was time. So I pulled the knife out and I pressed it to my wrist. And it was like the warm embrace of an old friend. It had been so long since I'd cut and I was, I was done with living. And as soon as the blood started flowing, everything changed. And I realized that me cutting immediately after getting out was proof that I really did need to be there. But I didn't want that to be the case. And I needed to prove to everyone and myself that I didn't need to be locked up like that and that I had found ways to cope and I also knew that going home would mean my parents taking me right back to rehab and I knew that another minute in that place would end me. So I decided that I should hitchhike back to Wyoming and hide out in my grandparents' basement. They were too old to go down the stairs and I, it was only five months till I was 18. <laughs> so... I, I start walking out of the neighborhood and it started snowing and I got out of the neighborhood in Alpine and to the long stretch of road leading to the freeway and my socks were getting wet. I knew I had to get out of the cold and at least change my socks. And I saw an LDS church up ahead and I knew that they would have covered uh, entryways that I could sit down and change my socks and at least get out of the snow for a minute. And when I got to the entryway, the thought occurred to me, I I could just try the door. It might be open. I don't know why I even thought that. My dad's job in, in Wyoming was to go to the church every night and make sure it was locked and, and nobody could get in. But for some reason that night, the door was open. And I got in and I started looking for a classroom in, inside that didn't have an outside wall to help insulate me from the cold. And in my search, I found the kitchen and a turkey roaster. So I filled that with water and I boiled it for heat in the night. And it did the trick. It wasn't the warmest I've ever slept, but after being in treatment where I never got more than five hours of sleep a night and just being exhausted emotionally, I slept the rest of the night and almost the whole next day. 
I woke up in the evening and there were sounds of voices in the hallway and I panicked. I, I knew that I had to get out of there and I looked at the chalkboard, which was a drippy ruin from the condensation and I didn't have time to clean it up and I didn't have time to put the turkey roaster back. So I unplugged it and I just left it for them. And I made my way down to the freeway and started walking along it. I was planning to go to Draper where my parents had moved and break into their house in the night and get supplies for the 200 mile journey back to Wyoming. After walking for what turned out to be 12 miles, I got picked up and somebody drove me the last three miles to the corner near my parents' neighborhood. I walked to their house and I crept into the backyard and I could see the lights were still on and I was just going to wait for them to turn off the lights and go to bed and I peeked through the window a little bit through the crack in the blinds and I saw my grandma. She had made the drive from Wyoming and her face was worn and tear streaked and I knew that her, I knew what pain felt like and I knew that I was causing hers and I, I couldn't live with myself for that and I didn't care if going back in meant going back to rehab. I, I had to at least give them some solace in the night. So I went around to the front and I rang the bell. My sister screamed when she opened the door and it was a tearful hugging reunion and everybody was just crying and, and not really saying anything. The next morning my parents told me the bad news that I was going back. I begged and pleaded with them, but they weren't having any of it. When we went back to the center, the director said that Blake's caused a lot of problems around here and everybody's really scared because he pulled a knife and the only way that I'm ever going to let him back is if he goes before group and apologizes and asks them if they'll allow him back. I wasn't going to accept those terms. I was done. <laughs> so we, we reached an impasse and it was the end of that, so I enrolled back in traditional high school and started picking up the shattered pieces of my life. The one good thing about being in such intensive treatment was that I did learn the coping skills to deal with emotional stress, and I was able to learn to accept and love myself, including the gay part of me. And I decided in the summer of 2003 that it was time to come out. You, you would think that everybody would be expecting it with the gay porn and the aversion therapy, but it, it came as quite a shock to my family. <laughs> now, I'm a little bit too, too nervous of a person to just stand up and proudly say the words, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. So I thought, how's the most passive-aggressive way I can do this? <laughs> I know. I'll get online, I'll meet a guy, and when I have a date set up, I'll just be like, bye mom, I'm going on a date with Michael, and run for the door. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. I, uh, I had written down the names of a couple of the handles of the guys I was chatting with, as well as the website I'd been on, because apparently I couldn't remember gay.com. <laughs> I had hidden the paper in my room, and of course it was found. And my parents, when I got home from work that night, they pulled me into the bedroom. And my mom unfolded the paper and handed it to me and just said, what is this? Shit, they know. Fuck, what am I going to do? And then it was just my initial reaction was to lie and cover it up like I'd been doing for 18 years. But then I got a grip. and <laughs> No, I'm, I'm ready for this. And I'm not ashamed anymore. And I'm, I want the truth to be out. So I just looked at her and I said, that is exactly what it, what it looks like. So you're gay? Yeah, mom, I'm gay. But doesn't that gross you out? A penis in your butt? <laughs> Whoa, mom. 
There is so much more to being gay than just the sex, but no, that doesn't gross me out. (laughs) My family was sad. It took them a while to come around, but ultimately when they saw how immediately my demeanor changed, I was happy and smiling again, and it was genuine, and the light was back behind my eyes, and they didn't care that I didn't fit into the perfect Mormon mold that they had planned for me. All that mattered was that I had a will to live again. Thank you. weirdly grateful tonight for having been raised Catholic. (laughs) Uh, I promised everyone I would read just a little bit of this porn story. Someone was kind enough to post this online. Now, when I was in my 20s, I was in New York and I was obsessed with all guys who are not white. And so this story was written sometime in the late 90s, and I was particularly obsessed with Latin guys, Latino guys at that time. I had moved into a neighborhood in Brooklyn where everyone was Puerto Rican or Dominican, and there used to be these haircutting places where young guys were cutting other young guys' hair, and it was all just filled with Latin guys, uh, cutting Latin guys' hair. And I would sometimes walk by and think, I wonder what else might go on there. <laughs> of course, nothing, you know, uh, hair cutting is what else was happening there. But I wrote a story envisioning that other things might happen. So in the story, I am this awkward redhead dude just walking around Brooklyn. And here's where the story starts. Where are you from, yo? I heard this deep voice behind me one blazing day. I reeled around and there was Ricky wearing nothing but blue basketball shorts and flip-flops. First, I had blue basketball shorts at that time, so I was writing what I knew. Also, how did I know his name was Ricky? I don't know. Uh, I kind of choked. Uh, just Kansas, really, I said, kind of stupid. Ricky laughed. Nah, Kansas? I laughed, too. Yeah, I swear it. He was grinning this little devil grin. Yo, that's mad funny, bro. Because you ain't in Kansas no more. And I'm about to prove it to you. He was suddenly dead serious and really kind of threatening. I was scared shitless. At the same time, I felt my cock waking out of its slumber curl. (laughs) Well, I guess I won't stop you from trying, I said, not sure what I was talking about. Then, Ricky was giggling like a little kid. He'd only been dogging me. Uh, I don't know if people still use that phrase. He grabbed me by the belt buckle right there on Grand Street and pulled me close enough to kiss. Then it's high time you came to see Shack, son. I love the way these young guys call each other son. It's so funny. That's not me commenting now. That's what's actually written here. (laughs) There's such a weird racial thing here, like I'm an anthropologist or something. (laughs) 
I could feel the tickle of my cock as it crawled across the cotton. That's pretty good. That's like T.S. Eliot, practically. I thought it was called the Buzz Shack, I said. He opened the door to the shop and gave my ass a little kick to pop me in. Well, we got another shack in the back, he kind of purred all nasty-like in my ear. Then he shoved the bulge in his b-ball shorts across the ass of my pants in passing. He was fucking huge. I knew all along Ricky was one of those motherfuckers you figure was chiseled by the hand of God right down to the tiniest detail. Only this particular detail was none too tiny. I was sweating out of plain fear to think what he might be planning to do with that monster. Or was it desire? (laughs) I felt a little faint as I followed behind him and the fresh acrid odor of his sweat grabbed me by the nose. That's Carlito and that's Lil Poppy, Ricky introduced me to his buzz-cutting buddies, clipping away at customers as we swept through the store. Carlito was just a big old pile of sexy like an oversized golden retriever. (laughs) I don't know what the fuck I was thinking there. Uh, Suddenly, I guess it got rather, you know, bestiality-based. I could have sworn he'd almost growled at me as I passed. Lil Poppy had this angel face, and he was sucking on a lollipop and kind of wriggling his nose at me. I could tell by the way they both lit up when we passed. They knew exactly where Ricky was taking me. So, yeah, just keep in mind, if there's a haircutting place, they're all fucking in the back. Next thing I know, we're in this little room in the back with lots of Spanish candles and a bed full of pillows. I don't know what Spanish candles are. (laughs) This is the bro shack, he proudly announced and stuffed my hand right down his b-ball shorts. I was too thrilled to hesitate. I gave a squeeze on the jumbo crown. (laughs) A fucking brewski, I thought. That's what I call a guy with a dick that's beer can thick. I was freaking on that warm, rubbery bigness. I swooned. My face felt right against the sexy gold chain on Ricky's silk and satin chest. I had a perky brown nipple staring at me like a little Christmas light. All right, I was floating. Whoa, little dog, he laughed. Up, let me teach you a trick. And then he uh, imitated me and nuzzled his face into my chest, but I suddenly felt his soft, wet tongue darting about ice skating style. And before I knew it, he had unbuttoned my shirt with nothing but his tongue. He began doing... I don't know if that's possible. (laughs) If so, you know, it seems like it would probably be rather time-consuming. He began doing sloppy figure eights around my belly button. My tummy went electric. I was being tickled delirious. He drove that tongue right up into my armpit and started throbbing away at it. My nerves were flipping. He popped up suddenly like a shark and playfully bit my nose. Aye, you taste like rum, Poppy. It's kind of like I just thought, I'll work in another racial thing. Like... Just like every paragraph, get something in there. 
I dropped to my knees. I looked up at the golden curves, the sleek, naked beauty of him towering over me, and now I was worshipping my island sun god. I bit down on those basketball shorts and flipped my head this way and that to get them down to his ankles, growling and panting. He was wearing only a jockstrap now, white against bronze, and so fucking hot. I grabbed a haircutter's scissors on the table and snipped the strap at the hips. The whole monster package burst out like a big brown jack-in-the-box. He had to be nine and a half inches thick with a glowing crown a good deal fatter than the already fat shaft. That humongous cock was the color of coffee, but with just a couple drops of cream. Uh, I'll leave the fucking part off, because I always feel like that's the least interesting part of a story, you know? Like, once you're there, you're like, I know where this is going. All right. Let me bring up to the stage our next storyteller. I'm sure she'll be thrilled to be following that. Uh, she told me that she was a Mormon advisor on the Book of Mormon, the, the, the musical. <laughs> not, not, not the original text. Uh, she is a great friend of mine, a storyteller from New York, so it's a thrill to have her here with us. Please welcome to the stage, Elna Baker! Hello. This is my first time performing in Utah. It is, I mean, and I talk a lot about being Mormon, but in New York, so this is like, even the show tonight, I'm like, it's like AA for Mormons. (laughs) My people, oh my God. We are all fucked up in the same way. Uh, So, uh, all right, here we go. So, I grew up Mormon. And I was practicing to a T, very faithful. And I lived in New York, and so I would tell stories. I would talk about being Mormon. And then when I was in my uh, mid to late 20s, I got the chance to write a book about being Mormon. And it was sort of the story of, like, a young, faithful Mormon in New York. So in the process of writing this, you know, it took about two years, but I felt like I started to see, weirdly, towards the end, my life from above. And seeing this person from above, I was like, wow, there's a persistent complaint in this person's life. And it's the fact that they're Mormon. (laughs) And uh, I decided, in that moment, you know, I only know what it's like to be Mormon. Do I really want to live the rest of my life never knowing what it's like to not be Mormon? And so I decided I would take a break for like a year. And it was totally under the premise of like, oh, I'm sure this break will just help me totally want to be more Mormon, but I'll at least see the world from the other side. (laughs) So I I went on this break and um, I thought I would start it off big. And I remember I had seen at the cabin I was staying at in the laundry room, there was, um, I'd seen alcohol, a bottle of alcohol in the laundry room. So I went to the laundry room and I was like, I'm starting my break today, I'm gonna drink alcohol for the first time. (laughs) So I got this bottle from the laundry room, I brought it home and I poured it and it was a dark bottle so I didn't realize it was basically empty, there was like that much alcohol. (laughs) So I like drank a tiny bit of alcohol and I was like, I'm not, nothing, I'm nothing, I wasn't drunk, I didn't feel anything. And that sort of describes what it felt like to be on a break. 
Because for the first six months, I was too afraid to do or try anything because I was still Mormon. And being Mormon, you think there's so many permanent choices for all of your actions that you're not like a normal person. If there's a glass of alcohol there, before your hand reaches it, you've thought through every single eternal consequence you grew up learning. <laughs> so that by the time you touch the glass, you're like, no, never mind. <laughs> and so it was about six months into this very uneventful break that I got set up with this guy named Daniel. And our friend set us up because uh, he had been Orthodox Jewish he'd, uh, until his mid-20s, lived in an Orthodox Jewish community. And he had left this community and he was in his mid-30s now. And so he'd really gone through basically the same thing I was about to go through. So we got set up on this date and I remember sitting in this bar in the West Village with him having like a glass of wine. And he turned to me and he said, like, how's it going? Like, how's breaking away going? I was like, you know, it's really hard. I spent my whole life trying to resist temptation, and now I'm like, go temptation, and I can't fucking do it. He said, well, like, what, what's the hardest part? And I said, well, I guess, like, the sex, sex stuff. Like, I, I'm really afraid of it, and I also, like, I'm 27. I have literally no idea how to do anything. And as if I were asking, he was like, well, do you want me to teach you? <laughs> Like, like this was a, a community service he did as a former Orthodox Jew. Like, well, you know, part of my calling now. And I, and I was like, uh, yeah. And so we, within two seconds, settled our tab, took a cab, and we're at my apartment. And he proceeded to, like, actually, in retrospect, really kindly walk me through penises. Like, he was like, all right, here's the penis. This is what it looks like when it's hard. Um, how to touch a penis. Don't, like it was very much like, don't touch it, don't, it was like, no, too strong, softer. Like it was very much like, just showing me the anatomy of the male sex. And so I, you know, I had really never, like I think the first thing I actually literally said when you took it out was, oh, it's so big. <laughs> he was like, you're already good at this. <laughs> He put my hand on it. He, like, showed me how to stroke it. Then we kissed. Like, kissing was, like, the, like, you know, eighth step of this process. <laughs> but my hand was on his penis, and we started kissing, and my hand started, like, you know, he, well, actually, he guided my hand, so. <laughs> his hand started making my hands move up and down. And it was this very charged moment, and I opened my eyes, and I looked into his eyes, and I said... Does the guilt ever go away? <laughs> How do you make a dick go soft, ladies and gentlemen? Let me tell you. <laughs> it was like the music stopped. He put his penis away and kissed me on the cheek and left. And I sat there alone and I was like, oh, like this has never happened, it's okay, just go to bed. I was like, just go, go to sleep. So I took a sleeping pill to roofie myself to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and the second my eyes opened, of course, all the memories of the night before came and they were like rushing, flooding, flooding in. And I thought, it's, it's okay, 
you're alive. <laughs> you didn't die. This is, it's fine. Nothing's different. Nothing's changed. You're totally fine. I slept in a loft bed, and I remember as I climbed down each rung of the ladder, more and more and more, more Mormon thoughts kept like piling on, and my feet touched the ground, and I burst into tears. And I like clumped onto the floor, and I was like, what have I done? <laughs> I touched a penis. That's what I did. <laughs> touched a penis why am I crying <laughs> but I am um, so I had this thing and also this this is not just Mormon this is also a little crazy um, but when we were kids when I was 18 we went to Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus had supposedly bled for the sins of all humans this Christmas is the time we should remember. So anyway, when I was there, I uh, was very religious and emotional. So I collected a clump of dirt and I brought it home and I put it in a vase. And over the last uh, almost 10 years, anytime I did something like really bad, I would take the vase down and pour a little dirt on my hands and go over to the trash and say like, I promise I will never do that again. Jesus is dirt blood. I would rough Jesus dirt up on my hands and throw it in the garbage. And then I'd be like, Poof, done, never doing it again. So I did. I poured like an extra amount of dirt on my penis touching hands. And I rubbed them together over the garbage and I was like, I will never touch a penis again. And like, please, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, like forgive me. Poured it in the trash. And I felt better. That pit of guilt in my soul was like for like, you know, a few weeks. But like, a couple weeks later, because the thing is with sexual curiosity, you do what you did before, but you wanna like do it again and then go like a little further. Not three weeks later, I had another dick in my hand. I was like, what is happening? I went home and I poured more Jesus dirt and I was like, I am never touching a penis again. And that just kept happening. Pretty soon I started, uh, this dirt had lasted 10 years. And in a matter of months, I was like holding the vase up to the light and I was like, I gotta, I gotta pour less dirt now when I repent for these things. And again, like no one really understood what was going on with me. It was just like, I would meet guys and then I would feel incredibly guilty, never talk to them again because my only way to avoid temptation was to just cut things off. And I remember, uh, there was this handsome guy I met out and we went back to his place and he uh, took my shirt off. And again, I was trying to be like, I'm part of this world. I can do fun, sexy things now. <laughs> and even that pep talk is an example of how not part of the world I was. <laughs> so <laughs> he took my shirt off and then he like knelt down in front of me and started like kissing my boobs. And as he was kissing them, he just, like, I was like, you're in this? This is fine, totally fine. And as he was kissing my boobs, he started going, he was Italian. He was like, oh, God. Oh, God, my God, my God, I love this, my God. I was just like, stop saying God, please stop saying God. And he was like, God, this is so, my mind so, God, I am a tongue on. And ran down his stairs and he followed me. And I was like, What? What's happening? Why are you leaving? Go, God, God. And I went home and I felt so guilty. I went to the vase and it, and it was gone. And I was like, What the? 
And I looked through all my cupboards. I couldn't find it. And I, like, knocked on my roommate's door, and I was like, did you see a vase? A little teeny green vase? And she was like, oh, sh- I knocked it over a few days ago, and it broke, so I, like, swept it up, and I threw it away. And I was like, but, but uh, what about the dirt? The, the dirt? There was dirt. Was there dirt in the vase? And she was like, a little. And I was like, what did you do with the dirt? <laughs> she was like, I threw it away. And I was like, in the garbage? And then I like opened the garbage, and I'm like looking, and she was like, what are you looking for? And I was like, dirt! <laughs> she was like, in the garbage? And I was like, where's the... And I just, in this moment, I just was so sad because I thought that I needed that to be forgiven, you know? Because I was doing something wrong. And so I overcorrected. You've probably all been there. Where I was like, this is not working. I'm going to be Mormon again. So I overcorrected back towards the Mormon direction. And I went to my bishop and I repented. And it was around this time that the book that I had written came out. And so as part of this book coming out, I started doing all this press. And the press was very much about like me being a Mormon and me being a Mormon in New York and talk about being Mormon. And most of the interviews were basically all the same. And then I got a call from Time Out New York. And the interview immediately started different. She was like, so what's your ideal date? And I was like, oh, uh, I, you know, I answered. And she was like, and what are you looking for in a man? And like around the fourth or fifth question about like what kind of guys I liked, I was like, I'm sorry, what does this have to do with my book? And she said, oh, it, this isn't a review of your book. I was like, what is this? And she said, oh, uh, it's for this section in Time Out called Fetish Finders. (laughs) And I guess, like, they have a section, it's Fetish Finders, so if you have a particular fetish, like a nanny fetish, they will write up a person who's a nanny, and then at the bottom be like, if you want to date this nanny, email nanny such and such at Tony Personals. And so I was like, what fetish am I? And she said, you're the virgin. And I was like, what? She said, oh, we have been looking for a virgin in New York for years. (laughs) So I tried, I was like so mortified. I was like, no, 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 no. So I tried to get out of it. I couldn't, we couldn't pull it. So you can Google this. Um, Under Time Out New York, there's Elna Baker fetish finders and I'm the virgin, right? And she said, like people who do this, they're going to, you're going to get like thousands of emails. And I was like, oh man, I felt like, I didn't want to check it. I was like, I don't want to see. I don't want to answer this. About a month into this running, of course, late one night, I was like, how many people want to date me? (laughs) Like, how many thousands of people? So I put in the login they'd given me. And in an entire month of this running, I got 11 emails. (laughs) That's how many men in New York want to date a virgin. Also, for context, 12 people have walked on the moon. (laughs) And the first email, uh, it wasn't actually uh, from a guy. The first email was from a woman, Nicole B. And the subject line was, I date ya. So I clicked on the email and it said, hey, it's your mom's friend, Nicole. I saw you in timeout. Weirdly, it was this, um, it's like seeing myself in this thing as this virgin person, right? And also, I was 28, and I had spent about 10 years pushing it down, you know, the way 
the, the way you do when you're Mormon, just being like, go away. I had prayed. I, I remember at least three times where I cried and prayed and said, take these feelings away from me. Like, make it go away. And it was in that moment that I realized, like, you're 28. Why don't you stop trying to make this go away? So I decided that I was going to lose my virginity. Like a mission. Like, I was like, I'm going to lose my virginity. And I have two, like, things. I was like, okay, first of all, I wanted to be, like, someone I know and is, like, a nice person because otherwise religion will be true because I'll feel really bad shitty about it. <laughs> and so those were my two, like, that's all. I was like, I should probably know them and they should be nice. <laughs> and so I started dating this guy and he was much younger. He was 24. He was much more supportive of it and, like, kind of walked me through the steps of it in a certain way. But I still, like... I think the whole time I was still not entirely sure, but you know, we, we kept fooling around and we go a little further and go a little further. And then, uh, like, we had sex. But in a way where I was like, no, no, we're just still fooling around. <laughs> like, I was, I don't think I realized I was, I, it wasn't that thing I'd always thought I would have growing up, like a white bedspread and the hotel and like the thing you see in movies. It was just like we were, I was turned on by a thing and then we did the next thing, right? But it was different. It was like you felt more connected to a... It was sex, guys. <laughs> you both probably had it. <laughs> I'm literally trying to explain what sex is right now. Um, and uh, I did that same thing where I was like, holy shit, what did I just do? Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Take a sleeping pill. And I woke up the next morning, and of course the Mormon in me woke up. And also, because we had been sort of fooling around, I... We hadn't used a condom. It was totally unsafe. And I woke up with that panic of like, not only did you have sex, you had sex without a condom. And so my mission, I told him I'm just gonna go on a walk and I walked to go to the pharmacy to buy uh, the morning after pill. Because I was like, well, wow, this is literally the plan B of my entire life. <laughs> and on the way to the pharmacy, I passed a newsstand. And for my book, I had done this, these interviews for this book. And one of them, I guess, had been held for Valentine's Day. And so I passed a newsstand. And on the cover of the Brooklyn L magazine was a drawing of a girl. And she was, like, topless, but you couldn't see her boobs. And naked except a big, heavy chastity belt. And it said, Elna Baker, the only living virgin in New York. And I saw it, and I was like... I just started crying. But I also was like, this is so weird. It's so weird that this thing, not only am I literally living out like, oh, not anymore, but also <laughs> it's on a magazine. And I really think I put it out in the world in that way of like, the more I say this, then I can't do it. I can't have sex. I just have to force myself not to do this thing and put as many obstacles out there. And I just lost it, and I started crying, and I called my best girlfriend. And she said this thing to me that I will never forget. She said, I hate hearing you this way. I've never heard you so sad. For the last two years of your life, you have been tricking yourself into doing a thing you wanted to do, and calling it a slip up, and calling it an accident. What if you just tried on this whole idea of choosing to do this? Like, because maybe you actually want to. And I thought, wait, that's not possible, is it? <laughs> and I went home, 
and I had sex again. And then I kept, I've, guys, I've had a lot more sex. And ever since then, I have not slipped into messy, oh, maybe one time. <laughs> I'm sure we've all had that one night, but I think overall, I have not slipped or tricked myself into having sex. I have chosen to have sex because it's what I wanted to do. And I thought, because it's what I was taught, that I would never find love or feel love if I didn't wait for that first love. And actually, that is the biggest lie they told us. Thank you. I had no idea that Time Out New York had a feature called Fetish Finder. <laughs> I may have to get a subscription. <laughs> All right, folks, we have just one more storyteller tonight. We're going to shift gears again. This story that uh, goes into uh, harder territory. Uh, uh, more emotional stuff here. Uh, he uh, wants to bring everyone's attention to a project that he is a part of called the Code Green Project, which is uh, uh, focuses on mental health for uh, people who work as emergency medical technicians. Uh, he runs a poetry slam every last Monday at Weller Bookworks. Please welcome to the stage R.J. Walker. What's up? Also ex-Mormon. Story's not about that. We don't have enough fucking time for that. Oh, man. So, uh, I am a professional slam poet. Some of you are like, fucking nerd. And the other part of you are like, that's a really impractical career choice. Um, but I did have a very cool and like actually practical job before I started doing the whole like, let's be a spoken word artist thing. I was a EMT for five years. And uh, yeah, I'm making a lot more money as an artist. If that like gives you an idea of how much money EMTs make. So... To be an EMT in Salt Lake, you have to go through the training. And to give you an idea of what EMTs make, I was in a McDonald's attached to a Walmart in South Jordan. The sign said, now hiring starting positions at $10 an hour. EMTs on Gold Cross Ambulance in the Salt Lake, in the city city, start at $9 an hour at the advanced level. So why would anybody want to do that? Like, why would you want to put up with all that shit and then get treated like shit? So, okay, growing up, it all goes back to childhood, always with, with us EMTs. It goes back to childhood. I watched a ton of action cartoons. Does anybody remember, like, 90s Spider-Man? Like, dear, near, near. And Alistair Smythe would build a new robot and Spider-Man would kick it to death and he would only fight robots because we didn't want to make children violent uh, in the 90s. So 
that's what I grew up with. I was like, I want to be that. I want to be Spider-Man. I want to be the hero that saves people. But I also, for some reason, am really averted to violence. <laughs> Thanks to... Thanks, 90s television. Um, so I didn't want to be a soldier or a police officer because I didn't want to hurt people because how could that be morally gray? Uh, so I went with going for a career in emergency medicine. Comic books and anime and cartoons had prepared me for like my crippling hero complex that would follow. So uh, in order to, to work at the ambulance job I wanted, I had to volunteer for six months. So you just work for free. You know, you can't get a job without experience, and you can't get experienced without a job. And in that way, isn't Spider-Man the perfect millennial superhero? He lives with his aunt and works for free. (laughs) So it spoke to me. So I work for free at this ambulance, and doing this, all this financial strain and all this bullshit that you deal with, people's death, people's complaining, people's drunken rants at you and occasional bites, uh... All of that can force you to murder parts of yourself in order to stay sane with your financial difficulties and being forced to work like 48 hours a week and then having to work at other jobs too. So my first ambulance job, I worked with a guy, I'm just going to call him Jeff, I'm going to change names for like privacy and HIPAA and shit. Uh, so, So I worked with this dude Jeff. They put me with Jeff because he was, like, more experienced. He had worked with this ambulance company for, like, eight years. The same one. And he wasn't like, let me take you under my wing, kid, because I'm EMT Yoda, and I'm going to teach you the secrets. No, he was an asshole to me. (laughs) Jeff was a bully. But, I mean, he lived a pretty miserable life. He lived in a camper near the station, so that's how he could afford to be an EMT. And he just ate shitty ramen all day. And that was his life. He was divorced. The only people that he saw were the people he worked with and the people he treated. And that was it. And, you know, Jeff would, of course, pick on the new guy, right? Because I was the green guy. And I was often, because when you're volunteering, you, of course, do more calls than anybody else because, like, savings uh, for the ambulance company. So I was always, like, disheveled because I was constantly on calls. My hair was always messy. And he called me Mophead because my hair was always messy. So he'd be like, hey, Mophead, you hold the vomit bucket. Hey, Mophead, go hose out the blood out of the ambulance. Y'all have hosed out the blood from the ambulance. I've been the new person before. So y'all have, like, experienced that, I'm sure. And sometimes he would call me fat. And I thought that he was, like joking I mean I'm sure he was like joking but he was like way like bigger than me and so I just kind of like laugh it off EMTs wear Teflon coated pants no segue needed Teflon coated (laughs) pants so that the gore and the blood just slides right off so I decided I would be like my pants and I would just let his fucked up jokes about like rape and death just like slide right off and all of his bullying would just slide right off like vomit from a drunk off my pants so we get a call one day Jeff and I we get in the ambulance and we, we recognize the address it was in this trailer park that was in this town we were working in which will not be named um, and this trailer park was bad like y'all are like well duh it's a trailer park but like this was like a nightmare factory like all of the worst shit ever happened in this one trailer park 
And we get there. <laughs> it wasn't Rose Park. <laughs> and we get there. And the police have already taped it off because it was a suicide call. And I walk inside and I see a guy sitting in a chair in his living room with a snub-nosed gun still around his finger. The wall behind him splattered with his brains and blood like he was painting. And I remember thinking how ironic he picked a living room to kill himself. We're not even, we're not even, we're not even at the fucked up part. And, and so Jeff and I go to treat this guy because legally I can't pronounce people dead. Like, so nobody has ever technically died in my care. We just have to go and like check him out and then call the medical director, tell him what's up. Then he's like, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll take care of it at the hospital. People don't die in their houses or in their cars. You want ghosts? Because that's how you get ghosts. <laughs> Seriously, nobody, nobody wants to sleep in the same room somebody died in. So people only get pronounced dead by doctors in the hospital. That's one of the ways we just keep death hidden. Like, it's this big secret. Like, you're just going to find out one day, surprise. None of us, not all of us make it. As in, like, none of us make it. As in, some sooner than others. And after we finish checking up this guy, we hear sobbing from around the corner. This guy wrote a suicide note. It was in Spanish, thank God. I didn't want to read it. And he locked his son in a closet and then shot himself in the head. So Jeff and I go back into the ambulance and Jeff grabs a blanket. And on ambulances, we keep stuffed toys inside for children in emotional distress like this one. And I picked up this stuffed cheesy ass rabbit that was like pink and lime green. It looked like something you would win at a shitty carnival game. Like at fucking Lagoon. <laughs> and I take this stuffed rabbit, we go to the kid, we break into the, into the closet, and Jeff puts a sheet, the, the blanket, over the kid. And I'm like, well, who's the bigger ghost? Like, you in the sheet or him in the chair and I remember thinking you don't need medics here you need fucking exorcists and we take the kid and we put him in the ambulance and I give him the stuffed rabbit like here's your prize good shot he holds on to this stuffed rabbit sobbing all the way back to the nearest hospital in Salt Lake. Like it's the only anchor keeping him here. Stopping him from flying off into the sky and joining his dad. After the call, we have what's called a critical incident stress debriefing. It's like a little come to Jesus meeting where all the medics sit down and we just talk about our feelings so that we don't go insane. It, it, uh, sometimes it doesn't work, as in like a lot. Um, but we sit down and the first thing fucking Jeff says is did you see Mophead he had two blue eyes 
One blew that way, and one blew that way. And I laughed. And Jeff laughed. And the medical director laughed. Like it was the funniest fucking joke. But it wasn't fucking funny. That was the worst joke I ever heard in my life. But we laughed anyway because because we needed something. We needed some sort of like anchors, something that we could at least pretend was happy or funny that we could hold on to to keep us from flying off into the sky and joining that fucking guy who shot himself. And then, four years later, I became Jeff. I didn't feel anything. I told terrible fucking jokes. And I was the senior guy, and I had a partner who was a rookie, who I'm just gonna call Jessica. And Jessica was like, I wanna be a doctor, cause like, I wanna save people, but I'm gonna be an EMT first, so I can know if like, the medical field is like, right for me as like a, like a tester. And uh, she wasn't as green as I was at the time of the last call, but she was, she was the rookie, and I, didn't, I don't feel like I was as mean as Jeff was to me, uh, but maybe I was, I don't, I don't really know. I don't remember a lot from, from that time because I was such a robot. And we get a call at 3 a.m. for an unresponsive infant in the same fucking trailer park. We call this trailer park Wyoming now, because nothing good ever happened there. <laughs> and we drove to this, the Wyoming guy is like, <laughs> and we, tr- we drove to the address in this trailer park and we go inside and as soon as we get in, we see these two parents holding up this blue infant, like they're car mechanics, holding up a broken violin, like I don't know how to fix this, please help me fix this and so Jessica and I start CPR because that's the protocol like I said I can't legally pronounce people dead I just have to work on the patient and this was Jessica's first time doing CPR on a dead body and CPR if you've done it I can see uh, who's done CPR oh there's like a few people here you know it lasts for fucking ever, right? It's like five minutes of CPR is like five years. And it probably, like, the stress takes like five years off of your life. It really just, like, feels like a whole lifetime. I guess poetically, it, it, it is. And we knew from the beginning. The medical director told us to call it, but we already knew. This blue baby boy had been dead for who knows how long. There was no crib in this one-bedroom trailer. These parents kept the baby in their own bed and smothered him in their sleep. How horrifying it must be to kill the one you hold close by holding them close. And Jessica handed me the clipboard, not really sure what to do. I knew what to do. I told Jessica what I had to do. And I wrote Sudden Infant Death Syndrome as the chief complaint. 
And I told these parents a big, fat lie. It's not your fault. I lied. Sometimes they just stop breathing in the night. It's called sudden infant death syndrome. And it's a real mysterious illness. We don't know what causes it. And this mother, she fell to her knees and shrieked so loud, I thought the earth would retreat beneath us. A lie this big. There's a lot of reasons why I lied. I was also a very heartless, emotionally stunted person. I lied because I didn't want to make more work for myself. I just imagined these parents, I imagined that suicide call, that guy with the gun. And the truth, the truth was a leather belt wrapped around a ceiling fan, hungry for that mother's neck. And the truth was all the whiskey in the world, thirsty for this father's blood and a new dead drunk to call home. I could live with the guilt of a lie. I'd lied before, but I couldn't live with the guilt of their guilt. And I wanted to get them in the ambulance and get them to the hospital and get them out of there and get this call over with as fast as possible so that I could go home, so that I could sleep in the fucking trailer for the EMTs at the station, and so that I could wake up and go to my other job and not have to feel guilty about anything and not have to feel their sadness for the rest of my life. So I lied. We take them all to the hospital. The medical director pronounces the baby dead. People only die in hospitals, you know. And the medical director said, you made the right decision. I told him what I did, that I lied. Told him what I wrote on the paperwork and he said he was gonna keep it that way. I went to the station, Jessica and I, retired to our rooms. I don't usually have nightmares. You kind of have to sleep to have nightmares. And I suffer from insomnia, pretty bad, probably unrelated (laughs) to my job or the mega amounts of caffeine I had to consume to keep going at like all of my jobs. So I took a double dose of my sleeping pills so that I definitely would not dream so that nobody would wake me up and make me think about it. And I wake up and we have our critical incident stress debriefing. And I sit down and the medical director says, how are you feeling? I'm fine, I lied. Felt like nothing. Like this is a little teeny lie, it's not even that bad. And then he asked, you didn't have nightmares? No, I lied. I slept like a baby. And Jessica laughed, and the medical director laughed, and I laughed, and that's when I knew I was fucking Jeff now. I didn't feel anything. I suffer from what's called acute stress disorder. Some people might tell you that it's PTSD light, or like diet PTSD, but they are wrong. A person with PTSD will overreact to their triggers and get put back into the past. A person with acute stress disorder will shut down emotionally. 
And that's just what I did every day. That was just normal. It's just what I had to do to survive was just not care about anything anymore. Like I was a ghost just watching myself work like a machine. I became this robot. And that wasn't what I wanted to be. I wanted to be Spider-Man, not the robot. And so... I decided if I was going to be sad and poor all the time, I might as well just be an artist. (laughs) And that's worked out all right. (laughs) But now I can look back at all those events that I just like shut out of my mind and write poems about them and start to feel them again. And that feels so good to put it on paper and put the paper on the shelf. Like this happened, this happened and I was there and I was a part of it and I saved them, I can appreciate it now. And I guess the clinical depression part of me says that I'm not important anymore, that I don't save people so I'm not worth anything like I was. But I watched those old cartoons, Batman Beyond and 90s Spider-Man, 90s X-Men. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And my preteen manga reading self says that it's all fine. That, you know, it doesn't matter if you never get a voiceover gig for the rest of your life. And it doesn't matter if nobody reads your poems because you're still saving lives, even if it's just your own. This week's episode, folks. This is Walt Gregory. You're like, wait, is that that dude out in Utah who um, does cultural appropriation songs <laughs> about being a Mormon? Yeah, that's Walt Gregory for you, dudes. Hey, if you are in San Francisco on January 15th, you gotta make it out. We're at the Swedish American Hall there, and it's going to be a remarkable risk show. We have an amazing cast. Jonah Ray, Michelle Buteau, John Fugelsang, Sean Patton, Brent Weinbach, and his sister. That's going to be amazing. Then on the 27th, we have our first show at our new home. 
in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Another amazing cast there. Uh, Jimmy Fallon's head writer, A.D. Miles. Broadway star Julie Halston. The hilarious Kurt Braunohler and Lauren Cook. An amazing show. Then on the 28th, we're back in L.A. And let's run through these February dates because for all of these, we are still taking pitches at pitchesatrisk-show.com. On the 10th of February, we're in Carborough, North Carolina. The theme that night is Holy Shit. Then on the 12th of February, we're in Austin, Texas. The theme is Confused. On the 13th, we're in Houston, Texas. The theme is Hostile. And on the 14th, we're in Dallas. The theme is Guilty. Pitch us for those shows at pitchesatrisk-show.com and be sure to mention in the subject line what city you're pitching for. Now, in March, we have not yet nailed down dates, but we believe we'll be in Washington, D.C. with the theme Powerless and in Chicago with the theme Ecstatic. So even though we don't yet have the dates set down for those, pitch us at pitchesatrisk-show.com. Now, don't forget, there are so many ways that you can work on your own communication and storytelling skills at thestorystudio.org. We have one-on-one training over Skype. We have in-person group workshops, corporate workshops. We even have online video lecture series that you can watch in your own time. That's all at thestorystudio.org. And finally, if you love what we do at risk, we are listener supported. Yes, we have some advertisers, but we dearly rely on the contributions that come in from the people who love what we do. We are no longer a part of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts, which means we're independent again and you can send financial contributions directly and solely to us if you just go to the support us page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I could tell by the way they both lit up when we passed, they knew exactly where Ricky was taking me. Next thing I know, we're in a little room in the back with lots of Spanish candles and a bed full of pillows. I read this to a friend recently, I said, what, what did I mean, Spanish candles? He was like, oh, well maybe like the Virgin of Guadalupe. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing hotter than that. 